Lord, we don't invite you into this place because you're already here, but we're just simply grateful for, uh, uh, Lord, for inviting us into this place. And so we want to take just a minute now and reflect on what that invitation means to be here and to be in your presence. Uh, Lord, with open arms, you have, uh, you have welcomed us here. Uh, Lord, even, uh, even pursued us and found us wherever we were uh, spiritually this week and brought us here to hear your message of grace uh, told in a new way, an old story. God, we pray that, um, that we accept your word with open hearts and open minds and, uh, and give us something, Lord, to carry, carry with us throughout this week. It's in your name we pray, your risen Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Um, I think uh, I've been a, a member of a club, uh, or one club or another, just about my entire uh, life. I, I suppose it started uh, way, way back. I mean, early elementary school. Uh, a friend of mine and I w- would head out into the woods behind his house. And we're like the only people around. But we've, we found the, a pallet, like a wood pallet, kind of stacked on top of each other. So uh, being young boys that we were, we went inside, grabbed a few hammers, some nails, uh, came back out and started uh, nailing the pallets of wood together. Sometimes like nailing them into the side of trees to give it a little more stability. So that we could climb on top of it and declare this uh, pile of pallets as our clubhouse. Because we had just recently, the two of us, uh, officially started a club. And we were the only two members. Now, having our own club in our own clubhouse, we realized that there's a few things that every clubhouse absolutely uh, needs. Uh, the first thing is a clubhouse needs, and a club uh, uh, needs members. Uh, distinguished members, of course. Officers, uh, membership, like we were. And you know, even though we're young boys, I had a uh, sneaking suspicion, too, that this clubhouse was lacking um, one thing, and it wasn't totally complete without a makeshift sign in cardboard and paint, as usual. Um, and if you can't quite read it, <laughs> it's upside down. If you can't read it, it says, um, no girls allowed. <laughs> because being a young boy, I knew that When you're in a club, it doesn't mean anything unless it's, of course, an exclusive club that only certain people could be a part of. So my friend and I, we devised a system that we could have um, in-members and, of course, out-members saying, hey, no girls allowed. (laughs) We're two young boys in a wood somewhere. I mean, there is not a soul around, let alone girls, let alone girls who want so desperately to be in our club that we had to make a policy and a sign to broadcast it. But this is how clubs work. Uh, Clubs have members and officers. Clubs have uh, club activities, whatever we do on our pile of wood pallets. Clubs have dues oftentimes. Clubs have a, a charter or a rule book to go on. And this wasn't, of course, the only club I've ever joined. Because uh, soon after that, you get involved in uh, sports clubs, soccer club, basketball, football club. And then there's school clubs after that. There's debate, there's music club, there's drama club. Uh, Even after that, even as an adult, you know, there's affinity-based clubs. There's running clubs or alumni clubs. More than a few of us, I think, have joined and quit a fitness club at one time or another. Uh, clubs persist, which, which makes it so odd, so fascinating to me that when somebody comes up and says, hey, listen, 
We've known each other for a long time now, right? Hey, I want you to try something. I want you to come with me to my church this weekend. It, I, it's a good time. I think you would love it. And it's so odd to me because immediately we sort of like go through the filter. The only way we have uh, uh, of looking at this place and what we do here to say, hey, listen, the question isn't just do I want to go to church or not. Immediately it's like, hey, is this a club that I want to be a part of? Do I want to, in other words, join the church club? It is a club, right? I mean, I just, I come here and I participate in the club activities. The music is phenomenal. There's usually a, a halfway engaging message. The, the food, I mean, this club, serve, they serve you breakfast and coffee in a to-go cup. How wonderful is that? The club activities are terrific. I just, you know, wonder if there's going to be dues that come up along the way. At some point, they might start asking you uh, to help out in some way or another. Maybe even uh, give toward the cause. Or, or, or worst of all, what I'd be most afraid of is what about if I go and I like it? And not only do I like it, what if I think it's worth joining? And if it's worth, uh, worth uh, showing up, it's worth even giving to both my time and my money. Worst of all, what if all of these happens and I really, really enjoy it and then I find out not a week later but like years later that there is some bizarre rule along the way, just some kind of club charter that I just, I cannot get over. Uh, so no, no thanks. I don't think that I want to be a part of the club. Or maybe I do. In which case, I'll take a look at that club charter, the Bible, and try to like figure out what it says to make sure that there's no hidden rules, you know, fine print somewhere that I'm going to have to abide by if I stick around here long enough. Better to know on the front side. And so immediately, you know, you start scurrying the word, with, particularly with an eye for for the weird clubhouse rules that we might object to. And there's a good chance that at some point or another, you're going to come across our Bible passage for this morning, which is uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And I got to tell you, it's going to be a weird one. (laughs) So uh, if you could just kind of hang with me for a a little while and maybe uh, just stick through for the next 10, 15 minutes or so, uh, hopefully it's going to make a little bit more sense. The words are on uh, the screen behind me, also on the front of the the flow sheet that you were handed this morning. This uh, passage comes to us from 1 Corinthians 11, and we're just going to read two verses, 5 and 6. Two verses is going to be enough. (laughs) But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head and is the same uh, as if her head were shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. I'm sorry. Um, we find this in the club charter, like these words, this is exactly what I was afraid of, right? That at some point or another, we're going to come across something just bizarre that says, hey, women out there, ladies, you're, 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 going, with, you're going outside with your head uncovered, and this is a problem. So <laughs> put on a scarf, put on a, a hood, whatever it is, but just get those heads covered. And it's, what do we do with that? 
Uh, chances are, if you haven't been uh, inaugurated into the club already, you're saying, like, that is exactly why I want nothing a part of this. And so you just chuck the whole thing, the whole charter, like, out the window and say, I, I don't want anything to do with it. Or because you've decided to come to church uh, this weekend, there's a good chance that you might consider yourself you know, a part of the club already and say, listen, it's against the, the rules to, to totally chuck the thing out. So I guess we have to have an alternative, an, another option. And it lets you kind of, and, and how the, the club works sometimes is that the other option is a way that we can maybe say, you know, it's true and it's right because it's in the Bible and we believe that the Bible is true and right, but, but I'm going to find a way to somehow make sure that this has uh, no bearing or implication on my life, let alone week ahead <laughs> at all. <laughs> And so there's a, a bunch of different ways that we can do this. So option number one, just chucking out entirely. Option number two, keep it but ignore it. And kind of just looking around the landscape here and saying, yeah, I don't really see anybody who decided to come to a church in a head covering. So I can just guess about how this, how this went this morning. And you tell me if I'm right or not. You decided, you know, knowing that the Bible specifically instructs women to cover their heads, um, you say, well, okay, there was something in that culture that was assumed but not said. There's something in that culture that, uh, that didn't have to be said because everybody knew it already. Uh, for example, um, I can imagine that there was a culture in which, um, there was a culture of modesty when, when women didn't go outside with, with heads uncovered. And immediately we start thinking, you know, Paul is a pastor type, and he's a guy, and so every time pastors talk about women's clothing, it's always about modesty, right? You know, you just picture, like, Paul as dad sitting down and going to his daughter, uh, you are not going outside in that. <laughs> Go put a sweater on or something. This, is, this conversation is done. It's not happening anymore. Like, this is what Paul is saying. There's something about a woman's hair being exposed to, you know, everybody that, that's somehow provocative or suggestive. And Paul is saying, ladies, <laughs> this conversation is over. You don't go outside like that. And so we can easily kind of go through, again, all happening this morning and saying, well, okay, uh, that's just not the case anymore. I mean, there is nothing about you know, hair being you know, exposed to God and everybody else that, that is suggestive and provocative in some way. So uh, it's still true. It just doesn't apply to us today. Totally what you thought this morning, wasn't it? I know, you can, it's all right. I can, I can read your thoughts. <laughs> no, of, of course you didn't go through that whole thing because you've learned a long time ago that there's going to be hoops that you can jump through or ways of thinking that you can sort of believe something is true, just have it not have any impact or bearing on your life, let alone weak. Except I don't think that's the case. If you've been following us along for the last few weeks, we've been, uh, we've been in a series called The Misused Bible. It's a way of looking at some of those uh, misunderstood, misused, um, misread Bible passages uh, throughout the last maybe four or five weeks or so, and we'll continue it for a little while. Uh, this passage here, maybe not a popular Bible verse, but certainly one that's not just misread, but I think just like non-read, just skipped over entirely. And I think that's a problem. Because I would argue that whatever, what it is that motivates Paul, who wrote these words so long ago, what motivates him to write these words down and consider them worthy enough to share to the church in Corinth is one of the most impactful 
messages that Paul has to any of the churches that he writes to in the New Testament. Furthermore, I think that whatever it is that motivates Paul to write these words and to share them with the church of Corinth is the key that God has for us today and this week for ensuring the health and vitality of his church moving forward, going from generations to come. That there is a principle behind these words that is so near and dear to God's heart that we can see it peppered throughout the entire word of God from Genesis to Revelation. And when we just gloss over it or when we skip it or when we you know, look at it and say something is going uh, unsaid and he just assumes knowledge about it and so I'm not going to you know, let it have any sort of impact on my life, I think we are doing ourselves just a tremendous disservice. Something does go unsaid. Something does go assumed on the part of the listeners. But it's probably not what you think it is. And it's definitely not Paul writing about modesty. To, to get at what it is that's so close to God's heart, we have to take just a small step back and to look at the, the context. Now, so often throughout this series, we say the context is like one verse ahead. Before I know the plans I have for you, one verse ahead of that, hey, 70 years you're going to be in exile. You'll die here. Right? No, no. We, we look at one verse back, two, three, ten dozen verses back, and before, afterwards, it doesn't get any more uh, informative. It just gets that much more confusing. Sometimes we just have to look at a few verses around it. Other times we have to take a look at some of the, the cultural context going on around it. But I want also for us to see that this isn't the only thing that, that Paul is upset about in the church. Because only a few verses later, also in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we see, we see these uh, other uh, angry words <laughs> written by Paul to the church in Corinth. When he says in verse uh, 20, same chapter, So then when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. He is so fuming angry about what's going on in this church, particularly in this chapter. Sometimes people come up and they're like, hey, Forget about the, the lights, you know, and the, the artwork on the wall. Forget about all that stuff. What we need to do is get back to the early church, you know, like, like how those first Christians did things. And the answer that I like to give, kind of a snarky thing, but you'll, you know, you'll, you're gracious people, but I like to respond with, which one? <laughs> which church? Because the church in Jerusalem, even in the same year, looks totally different than the church in Corinth. The church in Jerusalem had a, a, a Jewish population to it, and so the worship centered around the temple and synagogue. They had common meeting places. It was more than just a dozen people coming together. It was, it was hundreds, maybe even thousands of people coming together. The context probably looked a, a bit more like this. Uh, people joining together, there would be sing songs and hear from God's word. Not so in the church in Corinth, where this is written. At Corinth, modern-day Greece, you can picture, it didn't have almost any Jewish population at all. It was not temple-based. It was not synagogue-based. 
it, it was house-based. Because a funny thing about the message, the gospel message of Jesus, is that whenever it went, it had a way of embedding itself into the culture that it went into. And so if it embedded the Jewish culture, you'd have this temple and synagogue worship. If it embedded the, the Greek or the Roman culture, it would Im- embed there. And the Greeks and the Romans, they had uh, what they called uh, conviviums, where they'd uh, get together and it was essentially a dinner party. Where it was a, a themed dinner party. Uh, people would invite each other over, friends, family, colleagues, whoever, and, and it, would, uh, it would all center around a given topic or conversation uh, theme. So it's like, we're going to have a convivium about um, you know, the philosophy or love or theater or work or, you know, whatever it is, it could be anything. What it was wasn't important. What was important was how the night was supposed to progress. Now, the, the Greek version of this was a bit more raunchy called the symposium. You can look that up on Wikipedia. It was pretty nasty. But the Romans actually started including women along with this. It was a bit more refined, very progressive, I know. But the city of Corinth particularly the wealthy members, they had uh, every idea about what this was supposed to do. I mean, as a wealthy person, invite some friends over to their house. This is how the Jesus movement started to move, is that they'd come over, hey, topic for the convivium tonight, the dinner party tonight, is going to be Jesus Christ. Come on over, check it out. And we're going to discuss this, and then we'll leave. If somebody might be converted, they'll do the same thing at their house. Invite everybody over. Topic for the night is Jesus Christ. Eventually, this starts to take root and gets a bit more institutionalized. The people start regularly meeting, and they call it not just a convivia, but, but church. And it always happens on Sunday afternoon, Sunday evening, dinner time, meal time. And it would happen at a rich person's house because that was the biggest. Uh, people would walk into the home, through the courtyard, in, into the back room, the living or the uh, dining area. And they don't have tables, they have couches, because that's what you did. There'd be three couches, well, a number of couches on the three walls opposite of the door where you walk in. Uh, seating for maybe 20 to 30 or so. Not a huge group, but, but a large one for a dinner party. And as the meal would progress, they'd have courses upon courses and rounds of wine upon rounds of wine, and they'd they'd talk out every angle of the theme that was supposed to be discussed that night. When church happened, it didn't gather in a place like this. This would be more of a Jewish setting with a large group of people. It happened in the convivia. So people would get together regularly, And they started bringing elements of the Lord's Supper. When Paul says here, listen, when you come together, this is not the Lord's Supper. You can hear like the tone of his voice. You think this is the Lord's Supper. Whatever you're celebrating, it is not the Lord's Supper. Because what they were doing at the beginning of the meal, and I'm going to go over here because when we do the Lord's Supper, we do it over here. At the beginning of the meal, the host of the party, probably the person who owned the home, would break bread. Before courses, before wine, before everything, he'd break bread. And quoting the words of Jesus, he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And this is the point when we like dip it in the, in the grape juice, you know. And we're like, how in the world? He's so angry about people walking away drunk. Am I missing something? Absolutely. Because in the convivium, you would have an entire meal after taking the bread. So you'd, you'd eat some of the bread, or you'd have the bread broken, and then an entire meal would commence, uh, course after course, round after round of, uh, of wine. And at the very end of the meal, the last thing that would happen before the host would, would send everybody out with some words is he would take the cup, just like Jesus did after supper, 
and say, this blood is the blood of my new covenant. Do this in remembrance of me. For when you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the death of Christ until he comes again. If you've been around Encounter for a little while, you might recognize these words as said every first Sunday of the month when we celebrate communion together. Paul is so fuming angry because they, not because they, they've turned uh, the church into a dinner party. He doesn't have a problem with that. That was going on for a long time. He is totally aware that church, that, that um, the faith, sort of the gospel message, embeds itself in whatever culture he goes. He's so hopping angry because some people, when they get together, they outgrew the, the dining area of the house. It became more than 20 or 30 so uh, people. And they started needing to put people anywhere in the house. And so they started saying, like, looking at somebody and sizing them up according to maybe their influence or their economic value, how long they've been around, whether or not they know the person. They said, okay, those of you who have money, who have influence, who have prestige, you guys come on with me. And they head off into the back of the home where the dining area is. You can imagine what they ate there, steak and caviar, or the ancient equivalent of Others said, okay, you know, you've been around here for a little while and you have some upward mobility about you, some influence, so just hang out in the foyer area of the house, hang out uh, maybe in the living room or the kitchen. Some of you, I don't know at all. And frankly, you don't smell very good or there's just something about you that I just don't like. Your, your pore is dirt, so maybe outside on the dirt is the place for you. Out in the courtyard, you can imagine what they ate, what they didn't drink. Paul is so fuming angry because the setting that they're talking about, both for head coverings and also, and also for this uh, Lord's Supper meal, is Christian worship. It's supposed to be church. And they're breaking bread and pouring out the wine and saying, this is a remembrance of Christ's body. We're celebrating the fact that he is risen and God resides among us. And now some people are just so abusive of this fact that they are literally getting drunk from having too much wine. And there's others out in the courtyard that are so looked down on and so despised and impoverished, they're not even allowed in. Listen, Paul says, you think this is the Lord's Supper. This is, God has and wants no part in what is going on. You know, and it's just one more thing. You know, when, uh, when, when some of the ladies get together in the similar context, in the same chapter, in the same uh, worshiping context, when she prays, when, when she uh, prophesies or speaks on behalf of God, she uncovers her head. And do you have any idea how disgraceful that is to the Lord? Another known fact about Corinth, when women, particularly married women, walked out into public, they always covered their head. It was a Jesus thing, anything about that. It was just a culture if you were married, you'd wear a scarf, usually not something uh, large, just something to signify that, that you were of marrying age and that you were already off the market, so to speak. When you went inside into your home or in a friend's home, you were comfortable enough in a, in a private setting 
to take off the scarf, to take off the hood, to take off whatever it is, because you're comfortable there. It was your place. It was almost as if it was your own little club. Paul is so fuming mad at how they have, they've taken the concept of church and, and have twisted it in a way that says, listen, there are poor people among you that you have excluded and totally have written off while some are getting drunk, some are going completely without anything to eat all night long. Do you think they're going to come back? At the same time, there are some among you who, who think that this is just such a small, like, private affair that outsiders have nothing to do with this, and, and you don't treat this like a public event at all. It's your own little clubhouse, and you're starting to make little club rules about who's in and who's out. The very fact that you, you take off your head covering demonstrates you don't think anybody could show up to this. You don't think that this place is open to whomever God brings into this community. You are, with all grace and humility, dead wrong. The value that Paul has behind these words is such a commitment to the Lord who, who radically pursues each one of us to bring into his community, as Paul says later in Corinthians, into his very body. And he wants so desperately to have that relationship with so many. When people do something, like take off their head coverings as a way to show, this isn't a public event. No, 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 you are dead wrong. It is a public event. Because we have to make room for just anybody whom God might call to bring into this community. I said that, that the value behind what motivates Paul to write these words is so key to the health and vitality of the church, securing the health and vitality of the church for, for generations to come. Because God has such a, a passionate heart for those who are so far from him. the extent that he would go to, I can confidently say he would die for you. And he didn't die. Jesus Christ did not die so we can make up some club rules about who's in and who's out. Jesus did not die so that we could have club activities and come together. Jesus did not die so we could pay our club dues and offer services for club members. This is not the heart of God. The heart of God from Genesis chapter 12, the very beginning of the story, is Abraham, the, the father, the patriarch of the faith, saying, listen, I'm going to bless you so that you'll be a blessing to all nations. Isaiah 6, the voice of God rings out to says, who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. The last words of Jesus before he was taken up into heaven says, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Get out of here. This is not about being clustered together. And I think my favorite passage 
at least right now. Luke 19.10, also on the sheet. For the Son of Man came to make a clubhouse with rules to exclude. No, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. This is the heart of God. This is what he not just would do, this is what he has done for each of you. And he guards and protects his church, his bride, so closely that he would do anything to prevent it from becoming a club that excludes people. And as you leave this place this week and go wherever you might go, you represent a microcosm of his church. And so as a word of maybe instruction or a word of just challenging, somehow to apply these bizarre words about head covering, wherever you go, just reflect on that difference. Because what Paul says here, I think to, to, at the core of it is, church isn't about you. It's about them, whoever they might be. And so heading out into the week, you know, just think about time, whatever I have to offer as far as a free time or how I spend my time. Uh, think about talent, the gifts that I have. Think about treasure, the resources that I have to offer. Time, talent, treasure. Just ask the question, is it about me or is it about someone else? Because the heart of God says everything, not just a slice, but the entire pie, all of it, isn't about us. It's about those whom still are far off for whom God will call. Heart of God radically pursuing those who are far off because, because at some point or another we were all far off. And God's missional heart reached us. Or maybe it didn't. Not yet, anyway. Maybe you've been feeling, sensing, just mulling over this idea, this concept of a God who would chase after us, who would hound us, who longs to be in your presence. Maybe this was enough for the voice of God, the Holy Spirit, to tug at that heart and say, listen, it's been a long time since I had a relationship with you and I want it back. I want to give you an opportunity now, um, this week, to right now, to, to respond to that heart of God, that missional heart, to say, he's coming after me. <laughs> the doors are open. And he's leading me through. I invite you to find me after the service, find Pastor Brian at the service, because... Um, Whatever it means for you, whatever the implications might be, whatever next steps might be there, we want to be there to walk with you and to help you, um, help you be a, an open part of the church that pursues and runs after those who are a long ways off, just like all of us are. I want you to stand up and let's pray together. Gracious God, by your Holy Spirit, uh, we ask for courage this week and boldness to, to head into a situation, head into places that might be dark, 
They might seem like they're void of your presence, but Lord, we, with grace and humility, ask that you open them up to your presence. That God, if you so choose, make us the, the instrument, the vessel that brings, your ple- that brings your light into those dark places. And God, first and foremost, we ask that you illuminate the dark places of our heart to shine your grace so that we can be your people called out of all nations. In your name we pray, amen.